Hey everyone, this is Cody. In this episode, I'm going to talk about what I call the dangers of digital performativity. Practically everything exists online now. All of culture, politics, dating, commerce, all of it is now digital. A large segment of humanity is plugged into the digital zeitgeist at all hours of the day. I think that the explosion of the internet and social media has functioned to blur the distinction between what's real and what's virtual, between what's authentic and what's fake. Now, obviously, I'm not the first person to point out that reality has in large part become reality TV, right? I mean, we just had a reality TV star president. Hollywood actors and actresses fancy themselves as political commentators on social media. And politicians, actual politicians, fancy themselves as A-list celebrities, whose decisions are often driven by the desire to get social media clout. People spend their time watching other people live their lives on TV and YouTube instead of living their own lives. Satire doesn't really exist in the new idiocracy that is 2021 American democracy. Social media influencers, just think about this. Social media influencers doing silly dances on TikTok are some of the most powerful people in our society. I mean, just look at how much mindshare these TikTok teens have. They have a larger audience. They have more of an influence than the majority of politicians, academics, or scientists. Now, it's true that Twitter is not real life. But it seems like the blue-check Twitterati elite are having an inordinate influence on real-world politics and culture. Democracy has in large part gone online. And let me tell you, digital democracy is even more fragile than traditional democracy, where people deliberate with one another in person and have disagreements with one another in person. Seems like ancient history at this point. We've seen how social media can be gamed to undermine democracy. With the Russian disinformation campaign in the 2016 presidential election, the explosion of fake news, the proliferation of internet bots and trolls, the big tech censorship of prominent political voices, voices who may now be in a permanent state of digital exile, the emergence of online echo chambers and information bubbles, and the subsequent loss of a shared cultural reality between the two sides of the political spectrum, the elevation of sensationalistic content and conspiracy theories into the mainstream informational ecosystem, the personalization algorithms and the insidious game of surveillance capitalism, which functions to game the attention of internet users. All of this, and more, is severely deranging human interaction, and in the process, severely deranging the project of democracy. And look, I'm not on the outside looking in to all of this madness. I'm as plugged in as anyone to the digital zeitgeist. I keep up with the Kardashians. I stay up to date on the latest Twitter trends and get outraged at trivial culture war nonsense. I fall down random YouTube rabbit holes and let the recommendation algorithm control my destiny for an hour or two. I inundate my brain with podcasts and other content to avoid wrestling with uncomfortable emotions and confronting my own thoughts. I'm constantly distracted. I'm a victim of the online attention economy. Five minutes of work, 15 minutes of mindless scrolling on Facebook, hours of binge-watching watch, binge Netflix, 
I'm addicted to the dopamine provided by the digital Thunderdome. As addicted as anybody. Now, there's so much to talk about here with respect to the harms of social media and the internet on society and how social media is deranging human interaction. I mean, one of the most fundamental and obvious problems is that we are reducing the complexity and nuance of three-dimensional human interaction into a two-dimensional, 280-character Twitter space. We're unable to read people's intentions or gauge people's emotional tone when speaking because all we see is their tweet on the screen of our iPhones. And it's easy to forget that people are far more emotionally nuanced and psychologically complex than their tweets make them out to be. It's easy to lose track of the humanity of another person. It's easy for social media to become one giant road rage machine. So yes, there is this fundamental issue with the medium of the internet itself, but there's also the fact that most of our interactions online are public performances for the world to see. Not just for a small audience, but the world. In this episode, I want to talk about this performative aspect of social media. I see most interactions in social media as digital performances for a public audience. Just as theater actors use a physical stage to deliver public performances, I think that social media actors use a digital stage to deliver public performances. And I think that most social media users are performing in this way, whether they're aware of it or not. And I think that this kind of digital performativity can severely derange human communication, if for no other reason than because people change their behavior when they know they're being observed by a crowd. For example, have you ever been talking to someone, and while you're talking to them, you start thinking about how they might be perceiving you and what you are saying as you're talking? That is, have you ever, within the context of a social interaction, become aware of the fact that you are being observed and judged by others? This kind of awareness of how others might be perceiving you in real time can cause social anxiety, and it can immediately change one's behavior. In the social sciences, I believe, this, this kind of phenomenon is called the Hawthorne effect. Let me read a quote from investopedia.com on the Hawthorne effect. It says, quote, The Hawthorne effect is the inclination of people who are the subjects of an experimental study to change or improve the behavior, being evaluated only because it is being studied and not because of changes in the experiment parameters or stimulus. The Hawthorne effect refers to the fact that people will modify their behavior simply because they are being observed. The effect gets its name from one of the most famous industrial history experiments that took place at Western Electric's factory in the Hawthorne suburb of Chicago in the late 1920s and early 1930s, end quote. So, yeah, the Hawthorne effect can negatively impact the validity of experimental studies when you want to get data about people's authentic behavior in the wild, right? Any research, really, involving human subjects will be vulnerable to the Hawthorne effect. But I think the Hawthorne effect plays out on social media as well. In a sense, being plugged into social media is a global social experiment that we're running on ourselves, and we're both the experimenters and we're the test subjects. One thing that makes digital performances, as opposed to physical performances, unique is that you're performing not just to a real-time present audience when you engage on social media, 
but you're also performing to a future audience because a lot of what you say will remain on the internet, perhaps indefinitely, right? Everything you do online leaves behind a digital footprint. And awareness of the fact that one is leaving behind a potentially permanent digital footprint when they engage on the internet, that might change how one performs or how one behaves online. For example, think about the so-called cancel culture phenomenon and all the rest of that. Knowing that what you post on the internet exists forever, a lot of times can lead people to engage in self-censorship. They just choose not to convey their authentic opinion because they don't want to get canceled at some future date. However, being conscious of a particular audience that might be observing you, whether it's a present audience or a future audience, can not just lead to self-censorship, it can also lead to a phenomenon called grifting. And grifting can in turn undermine one's authenticity as a person. So let me just explain the concept of grifting. Right? When you play to an audience, you become predictable. Never mind the fact that it's easy to misread intentions online because you don't get the full-blooded human interaction. You're also often incentivized to misread intentions and respond in calculated ways online for the pleasure of the mob that may be following you, or for the pleasure of the particular ideological audience which may be following you. And I submit that when you combine the performative element of social media, the inherently performative element of social media, with the desire to make money, then the danger of becoming a grifter becomes heightened. Right? Essentially, this happens when you find out what the audience that you cultivate likes, and then you start either consciously or subconsciously playing to that thing. Right? If, if the audience that's following you likes that you're getting woke, then you're going to get woke or go broke. Or if the audience that's following you likes the fact that you're anti-woke or that you're ripping on cancel culture, then you're going to continue to bash on cancel culture, right? That's going to be your cash cow. And at some point during this process of audience performer feedback on social media, you start to become a parody of yourself. You start to become less authentic as a person. Again, go back to the actor analogy. It's well documented that some method actors can become so lost in a character that they lose track of their real selves. I submit that a similar thing can happen to social media actors. Right? Users of social media can become so lost in a character that they are playing, a character that their audience wants to see, that they can lose track of their true authentic selves. Now, one particularly insidious aspect of digital performativity is the phenomenon of internet trolls, right? <laughs> this performative aspect of social media has definitely helped fuel the emergence of trolls. So according to geek.com, quote, an internet troll is someone who makes intentionally inflammatory, rude, or upsetting statements online to elicit strong emotional responses in people or to steer the conversation off topic, end quote. I think everyone or most people, intuitively understand what an internet troll is, right? Trolls feed off of attention. They feed off of the adulation of the mob. And look, some internet trolling can be harmless, and it can be fun, even. But internet trollery isn't just a way to have a laugh at the expense of someone 
who isn't social media savvy, or who isn't in on the joke. Trollery is also a way to influence national discourse and politics. Internet trolls fan the flames of the ongoing culture war that we're all embedded in. Internet trolls help get presidents elected, as we saw in the 2016 when President Trump got elected president of the United States. I might go as far to say that trolling is one of the most effective forms of political activism in the digital age. The scholar Kate Crawford offers the following quote on internet trolling. She writes, quote, Distrust in trolling is happening at the highest levels of political debate and the lowest. The Overton window, the range of acceptable behavior, has been widened considerably by the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign, and not in a good way. Presidential candidates speak of banning Muslims from entering the country and retweet neo-Nazis. Trolling is a mainstream form of political discourse. End quote. Now, I do think trolling is a form of political activism, but I think it's a bipartisan phenomenon, right? It's not just people on the right that are doing it, but it's also people on the left. And it's not necessarily a good thing, morally speaking, even if it's politically effective, right? A lot of internet trollery involves hate speech or misogyny or other forms of bigotry. Often internet trolling is done by the extremes of the political spectrum or at least these are the most vicious trolls, right? People from the far left or the alt-right. Now, when you combine this performative trollery, this shitposting, when you combine that with a radical political ideology and conspiracy thinking, that combination of things can get really dark. Websites like 4chan and 8chan, for example, are known to foster conspiracy thinking and extreme rhetoric particularly from white supremacists, far-right nationalists, neo-Nazis, Islamophobes, and anti-Semites who subscribe to the so-called Great Replacement conspiracy theory. Suspected shooters from three mass shootings in 2019 posted screeds on the website 8chan. The El Paso shooting in early August, the San Diego area synagogue shooting in April, and the New Zealand Christchurch mosque shooting in March. In this episode, I just want to focus briefly on the New Zealand shooting, to show how digital performativity in the context of radical conspiracy thinking can lead to deadly consequences. So at 1.40 p.m. on March 15, 2019, a far-right Islamophobe, white supremacist, will remain nameless, entered the Al-Nur Mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand with semi-automatic rifles and shotguns, and he started shooting. He then drove to a second mosque, the Linwood Islamic Center, and continued his massacre. This man murdered 51 people and injured 49 others before being apprehended by police on his way to a third mosque. This man live-streamed the massacre on Facebook as if he was playing a first-person shooter game. Prior to the attack, this white supremacist terrorist published a 74-page manifesto on the website 8chan. This manifesto has been likened to one long shitpost. It's littered with memes and internet in-jokes that only online extremists would understand. At one point in the manifesto, he jokes that the video game Spyro the Dragon taught him ethno-nationalism. At the beginning of the live stream, he tells his viewers to subscribe to PewDiePie, which is another fringe internet meme. This entire horror show appears to have been a kind of craven performance for the twisted, 
far-right ideologues following this man on 8chan. Right before the attack, he posted on 8chan, quote, well, lads, it's time to stop shitposting and to make a real-life effort post, end quote. A real-life effort post. That's how he conceived of the mass carnage that he was committing. This is the darkest, most horrific manifestation of the phenomenon of digital performativity that I've been describing. Right? The phenomenon of how the distinction between the real world and the virtual world is becoming increasingly blurred. Now, what can we do to stop people from becoming radicalized online and to stop this online radicalization from seeping out into the real world? Well, in the specific case of terrorist attacks, we might implement different kinds of gun control, just as New Zealand did in the immediate aftermath of the Christchurch shooting. We might ban some of these sites that foster online radicalization. I know that 8chan, for example, was actually taken down in the aftermath of the El Paso Walmart massacre. But I do think that the censoring of these websites and the censoring of people with radical political ideologies can be dangerous. Sometimes it can make them more radical, or it can push them underground to places like the dark web, where they can't be monitored as easily. Right? We might investigate how algorithmic filtering mechanisms on sites like YouTube have a propensity to push people towards radicalization and conspiracy thinking. We might reimagine the algorithms that govern these sites. We might remove online anonymity so we can more easily track people engaging in hate speech and threats of violence to hold them accountable. But the flip side of that coin is that online anonymity also has benefits, particularly to whistleblowers who are exposing important truths. So I don't have any good answers here. Not for the specific problem of far-right online extremism, or for any of the other problems associated with social media, and how social media is deranging human communication, specifically through the digital performativity aspect that I've been focusing on in this episode. I suspect that we might need to radically reimagine and transform our methods of online communication in order to break out of this social media nightmare that we're all plugged into. Right? Perhaps virtual reality is the future of social media. You can imagine in the future what you might call virtual social media, in which everyone is plugged into some shared virtual space, their bodies are represented by digital avatars, and they can communicate with one another in a full-blooded three-dimensional manner. But even in a world of virtual social media, we'll still face the problem of digital performativity that I've honed in on here, right? At least if our interactions in virtual social media are still public in the way that Twitter is public today, right? It's the public nature of these interactions, the fact that there's an audience to them, which really leads to this performative aspect that I've been talking about. Now, I'm not saying that all communication should be private. The problem is that if we spend more and more time on social media, then an increasing amount of our human interactions become public. And our entire lives start to turn into this public performance. We all become the stars of our own reality TV series. We all become the protagonists of our own self-manufactured Truman Show. One of the main issues, again, is that this leads us to become less authentic. This turns us into parodies of ourselves. We play to what the audience wants, whether we are conscious of this fact or not. Andy Warhol once said that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. This quote has aged, I think, incredibly well 
with the advent of social media. Because we now live in a culture where everyone is trying to go viral and get their 15 minutes of fame, and where everyone is famous to at least 15 people who follow their social media accounts. And again, this is deranging our society. So with that, I'll think I'll end. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.